You can be seated. Before I begin my remarks today, I just want to say thank you. I know um, many of you who are at least part of Pete's network, and I, uh, there have been many people who yesterday lifted up many prayers uh, uh, for the people of Mexico as they faced a uh, hurricane bearing down on them. Those who do know Pete and some of you who might uh, be connected with me on Facebook, you know that uh, my parents live right in the city of Puerto Vallarta and for the last nearly 10 years have conducted a mission along the coastlands uh, uh, south of the city of Puerto Vallarta, which were in the direct line of hur Hurricane um, Patricia. Uh, it was the largest uh, hurricane measured um, in the Pacific Ocean in history. And um, we watched as it was coming closer and closer, a Category 5 hurricane, and my parents appeared to be right in the crosshairs and in the last hour. Uh, or so before it was, it was due to make landfall where they were, uh, it took a drastic turn into a much less inhabited area, uh, thereby saving literally hundreds of lives which, which would have been decimated. So uh, we serve the Lord who is the Lord and the providential Lord of all creation. Amen? Um, whether, whether in storm or in sunny weather, we can trust his hand of providence and we, 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 we are grateful that we can also come to him and intercede and see him work on our behalf. So we're grateful to see the, the salvation of many lives uh, in, the, in the course of that event yesterday. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, would you join me in praying as I begin this morning? Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters. Lord, we lo love your word, and we thank you that we can open it up together, that we can learn from your word together. And God, we love your word because it shows us you. So we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures would be here to illuminate them to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us eyes so that we might see your truth and your glory. And Lord, let our hearts respond with joy, which brings you such glory. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen and amen. So this morning I get to talk about the work of the Father in creation. I'm excited about it. And, and I want to begin with some introductory remarks. First of all is this. The moment that we talk about the work of the Father in creation, we're faced with an important task. We need to step back and we, we need to ask a preliminary question. And it's this. To what extent can we look at the scriptural data on creation, slice it into bits, and attribute bits of it to the Father, bits of it to the Son, and bits of it to the Holy Spirit. There are two extremes that we need to avoid when seeking to do this. We don't want to strive for too fine a distinction on one hand, attempting to attribute certain distinct acts to only one member of the Trinity, when in fact they belong to all the members. On the other hand, we don't want to understate the distinctions that Scripture itself makes in the works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For example, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, the Ruach, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or Psalm 33, verses 6-9, through nine, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath, the Ruach, of his mouth, that's what we saw in Genesis 1-2, was translated spirit, 
All their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in the storehouse. Let the earth fear the Lord, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And then we trace into the New Testament, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Son, and the Word was with God, the Father, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. Pay attention to those prepositions. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. Uh, he, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the Father, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, again, those prepositions are important. First Corinthians 8, 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here we can, we can see that there's these distinctions made between the works of the Father and the works of the Son and the works of the Holy Spirit. We can make distinctions and we can probably safely observe something like this. The Father is the initiator of creation. The Son and the Holy Spirit enact the will of the Father. Millard Erickson, in his introduction to Christian doctrine, said this, It was the Father who brought the created universe into being, but it was the Spirit and the Son who fashioned it. While the creation is from the Father, it is through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. We can even trace back to uh, some of our earliest creeds. For instance, the Nicene Creed seems to hint at the exact same set of distinctions within the unity and unified work of God. It says of the Father, I believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Then speaking of Jesus, I believe in one Lord Jesus the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, forgotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. So through the agency of the Son, the Father enacts his will to create. Um, And then speaking of the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, through the Holy Spirit's action. Again, the Father does his work of creation, who proceeds from the Father, And the Son. So, by way of introduction, we can distinguish different roles, but ultimately we want to maintain a strong affirmation that creation is the unified work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no action in isolation in the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work to glorify God and each other. In the words of the Westminster, In the beginning, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to create the world out of nothing in order to reveal the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. He made everything in the world, visible and invisible, in the space of six days, and it was very good. So with these preliminary remarks made, I want to dig into the substance of the talk I'm going to have this morning. I'd invite you to pull out your Bibles, uh, if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be looking at Genesis 1 and 2 this morning as we consider the work of the Father in creation. 
And as we, as, we, as we do this, let me just tell you what I'm hoping to do this morning. This is what I'd like us to do. This morning, I want us to see the truth and the implications of the fact that our Father God fashioned an environment in which his children could know him and glorify him. I'll say that one more time. I want us to see the truth and the implications of the fact that our Father God fashioned an environment in which his children could know him and could glorify him. So I'm going to look at two parts, uh, God's work in uh, creation of nature and his glorification in the creation of humanity. So there's two broad sections to what I'm going to be saying this morning. So part one, the father glorified in his creation of nature, which was an environment for his children in which they could know him and glorify him. Genesis 1.1, the first five words, gives us our launch point. In the beginning... God created. Would you say those five words with me? In the beginning, God created. Here, in the first five words of the text, we confront the crux of every modern debate. Questions about human sexuality, questions about the rights of the unborn, questions about environmentalism and stem cell research and the proper limits of scientific inquiry and experimentation. These first five words bring us to the very heart of the issue and clearly state on which side we Christians stand. In the beginning, God created. What is the crux of the issue? Let me give it to you. In this world, we ask a question, and it's this. Is this world, at rock bottom, a world of personality, or is it fundamentally impersonal? Let me put it another way. Is this world a designed environment or a cosmic accident? The, the words of Genesis confronted a radically different worldview when they were written, just as they confront a different dominant worldview in the world that we live in here today. Genesis 1-1 confronts the modern world just as it confronted the pagan world of its day. In in the pagan world of its day, we saw a mythology, a myth that gave meaning to all the world around Israel. And and Genesis 1-1 stood in stark contrast to it. Let me just read you a little bit of the the myth that would have dominated the ancient Near East when when Israel uh, came into being and when God revealed uh, the creation narrative. This is from the story of Marduk, who was the great god of the Babylonians, had uh, had a connection to Baal, and, and went all the way back to Sumerian mythology. Let me read it to you. In the beginning, and, and as I read, listen for comparison and contrast to the Genesis story. Uh, in the beginning, neither heaven nor earth had names. Apsu, the god of fresh waters, and Tiamat, the goddess of salt oceans, and Mumu, the god of, don't they have great names? you got to love these pagan god names. They are just amazing. And Mumu, the god of the mist that rises from both of them, were still mingled as one. So there's this kind of primordial ocean and uh, god and goddess that kind of mingle all together. There was no mountains. There was no pasture land. Not even a reed marsh could be found to break the surface of the waters. It was then that Apsu and Tiamat parented two gods. So Apsu and Tiamat come together and they have two more gods. And then two more who outgrew the first pair. These further parented gods until Ea, who was the god of the rivers and was Tiamat and Apsu's great son, great grandson. So gods are just kind of parenting each other and springing up all over the place, right? Was born. Um, 
Ea was the cleverest of the gods, and with his magic, Ea became the most powerful of the gods, ruling even his forebears. So he rose up in the pantheon of pagan deities. Apsu and, Apsu and Diamat's descendants became an unruly crowd. So here are Apsu and Tiamat, the first uh, god and goddess. They have all these kids, and they get sick of them. Eventually, Apsu, in his frustration and inability to sleep with the clamor, went to Tiamat, and he proposed to her that he slay their noisy offspring. Dad, you ever uh, get woken up on your day off by the kids and, man, I want to kill those cats. This guy actually wanted to do it. So he went back to Tiamat and he said, let's do it. Tiamat was, uh, was, was uh, furious at his suggestion to kill their clan. But after leaving her, Aps, leaving her, Apsu resolved to proceed with his murderous plan. When the young gods heard of his plot against him, they were silent and fearful. But soon Ea was hatching a scheme. So Ea, Tiamat, and Apsu's great-grandson. He cast a spell on Apsu, pulled Apsu's crown from his head, and killed him. So then there's this great confrontation. Tiamat has regrets. Her husband has been killed. She decides to come against Ea. And we read that they war, and Ea eventually kills his great-great-grandmother, Tiamat. After, now listen, here's, here's where it gets really interesting. After subduing the rest of her host, he, Ea, took his club and split Tiamat's water-laden body in half like a clamshell. He put it in the sky and made the heavens. He posted guards to make sure that Tiamat's salt waters could not escape. So he makes a firmament out of the body of his great-great-grandmother. Across the heavens he made stations for the gods. He made the moon and set it forth on its schedule across the heavens. From the other half of Tiamat's body, he made the land, which he placed over Apsu's fresh waters, which now arise in wells and springs. From her eyes he made flow the Tigris and Euphrates. Anybody remember where those get mentioned? In our creation narrative, Genesis 2, right? Across the land he made grains and herbs and pastures and fields and rains and seeds and cows and ewes and forests and the orchards. Marduk set the vanquished gods who had supported Tiamat to a variety of tasks, including work in the fields and canals. Soon the gods complained of their work. However, they rebelled by burning their spades and baskets. So Marduk saw a solution to their labors and proposed it to Ea. He had... Kingu, Tiamat's general, brought toward the ranks of the defeated god, and Kingu was slain. With Kingu's blood, with clay from the earth, and with spittle from the other gods, Ea and the birth goddess Nintu created humans. On them, Ea imposed the labor previously assigned to the gods. Thus, the humans were set to maintain the canals and boundary ditches, to hoe and to carry, to irrigate the land, to raise crops, to raise animals, and to fill granaries, and to worship the gods at regular festivals. Now, isn't that fascinating? Isn't it fascinating to see the convergence and the radical difference between the presentation of a creation origin narrative from Genesis, the one that we're all so familiar with, and one given by this pagan world? Here we see in the pagan world that Genesis narrative stands against a narrative of chaotic forces and warring gods. In many ways, the creation of human beings within the worldview of, of the ancient Near East was a great big accident. It was something that happened in the course of gods warring one against the other. And over against this myth of accidental origins, Genesis 1-1 tells us something. 
In the beginning, God created. A radical contrast with the world into which it first came. And in our own world, we face a similar mythology. The mythology of evolutionism. This story, the story of evolution, has captured our world and lies behind our approach to philosophy and psychology and medicine and politics and education. It would, in fact, be impossible to overstate the influence of this mythology in our world today. It serves as the mythic wellspring of the modern worldview. Fundamentally, this story, the story of evolution, is is much like the story of the ancient Near Eastern pagan world. It's a story of forces of chaos somehow producing our world and us. Sure, we put different names to it. Matter, motion, and time. From nothing came something. We know not how. The chaos of an explosion somehow led to us. Space debris became planets. Planets cooled and formed ocean. Rain fell on rocks. Chemicals combined. Lightning struck the right pool at the right time. And the story goes on and on. And we, we read a story of life as nothing more than an increasingly complex organization of space dust. What's the result of this mythology? Life in a fundamentally impersonal world. At the rock bottom of all things, there's matter and motion and time. And the events of this world and the thoughts of our minds and the experiences of our lives and the inquiries of reason are nothing more than one more domino being pushed over in a great chain reaction that goes back to something of fundamental impersonality. And here's the thing, you can't start with the impersonal and work your way into the personal. Imagine for a second that we were here today and and I sat down and I gathered you all around and and there on the floor I I took a set of building blocks, right? And I I take these wooden blocks and I organize them and and I'm a very clever architect and I, I organize them into a smiley face. Let me ask you a question. Do those blocks feel joy? Or I take those blocks and I cleverly arrange them into a frowny face. Do those blocks know grief and lament? Or I, I take them and I, I organize them and, and I, I, I organize them into a, a heart. Do, do those blocks know love? No, they're impersonal objects, they're things. They have no personality. And the reality of our world is this, that we can't move from an impersonal origin to a personal being. We set up a set of impersonal elements, and however cleverly we arrange them, they will not magically take on personality. And we're living with the implications of this origins myth in our world today. Humanity has been reduced to a genetic photocopying machine. All our drives, our desires, our noble actions, our despicable passions in the modern worldview are nothing more than a set of chemical reactions oriented around replicating DNA. And the result is this, that modern man is incapable of accounting for his deepest intuitions, his aspirations, or his immutable moral sensibility. All these things have been necessarily reduced to something that below the surface is just a more complex version of my cleverly 
arranging blocks. Totally impersonal. And we can only agree with Paul's assessment in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So over against this modern mythology, we magnify the great person. We magnify God, our Father, who is the origin of all things. In the beginning, God created. The universe is personal because a person made it. It is designed. It's imbued with his purpose. Let me give you a key principle. If you don't take much out of what I've just been talking about, take this with you. Because the universe is personal, it is purposeful. Because the universe is personal, it is purposeful. In other words, there's an inherent purpose to this world. Things have a function and a meaning because they have an architect and a designer. There's a right and a wrong way to make use of this world, including our bodies. In all our actions, we're either acting in harmony with an inherent design plan or in contradiction to that design. Let me illustrate it. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with with learning how to defy gravity. And then when I was about five or six, I had a really clever idea. I thought I would pick up my one leg and hold myself up by the knee. And then if I could pick up my other knee really fast, I'd be floating in the air. Do you think it worked? No, I got a sore backside, right? So then I had another idea. My mom had these plastic shopping bags. So I went and I got a plastic shopping bag. And I ran and I jumped and I tried to slow my descent to earth by holding it above my head like a parachute. Do you think that worked? No, it didn't work. So then I had a better idea. I thought, well, I'm just not high enough. And my parents, <laughs> this, is where, this is where children go. Okay, be careful, parents. Uh, I, my, I thought I'm just not quite high enough. And so I got up on my parents' brick barbecue. They had one of those, remember, old installed brick barbecue things. And, and it was probably about four feet off the ground. And I jumped off that. And I didn't have enough distance, I decided. It didn't work. So uh, I found myself in a tree. And then after the tree, I literally found myself standing on, this, on, this, on, the, roof, uh, on, the, on the on the roof of my parents' garage. And uh, counting to three and jumping. Let me ask you a question. Did it work? How come? Because plastic bags aren't parachutes, right? There's an inherent and unbreakable bond between nature and function. A thing can do what it does because it is what it is. We live in a world that has nature and it has design and it has point and it has purpose and it has function. And so our morality and our, and our, our, our action and our science, these are all bound together with a fundamental assertion that God, in the beginning, created. He designed. He made. And because the world and all the things in it is designed, it is inherently purposeful and moral because it is purposeful. The myth of evolutionism can say no such thing. It's an impersonal world. An impersonal world cannot use the language of right and wrong and design and purpose and intention. In fact, if you go back to Darwin's day and look at the philosophers who lived in his shadow, you'll see that they immediately understood, intuitively grasped, 
and began to wrestle with these implications. You can look back to Friedrich Nietzsche and look at his proclamation of God's death. Everybody been in in college classroom, you looked and someone wrote God is dead and beneath that uh, someone wrote Nietzsche is dead, God, right? Uh, anybody ever see that in one of, your, one of your desks? Nietzsche famously proclaimed that God is dead. Of course, he wasn't saying that God had ever been alive and then died. He said, we now live within a new world, a world that makes sense apart from the need of a creator. And, and, and in this new world, without God, any attempt to, to, to connect our actions or our desires or our morality to some sort of external force that rules above all of us, it's futile. God is dead. Learn to live with it. Or Heidegger, another German philosopher who spoke of us being thrown into this world. In other words, we're, we're, we're thrown into this world without an inherent meaning or, or purpose. We're like a piece of garbage cast aside. It's up to us to make sense of our world. Or Albert Camus in, in France who told the great myth of Sisyphus. And he said, you want to know the meaning of this world? Here it is. And he spoke about Sisyphus, one of the Greek tragedies. Sisyphus who was forced to roll a great stone up a hill. And just as it got to the top of the hill, that great stone would roll back down the hill. And Sisyphus would have to go back down the hill and roll it up. And the gods granted him the great gift of eternal life. And the great task of repeating that again and again and again. And Camus said, that's about as much meaning as our lives have. Perhaps the best example is Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre took one of the most famous philosophical axioms and turned it on its head. Up until the days of Darwin and the modern worldview, people had believed a basic sentence that expresses much of what I'm saying. And it was this, that essence precedes existence. In other words, there's an essential purpose to life. There's an essence, there's a meaning, there's a human nature that is essential to humanity. And that is something that comes before our existence. So we're called to live our lives in response to this essence, to this meaning, to this purpose of life. And, and, and Sartre came along and he said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh not in this new world. In this new world, existence precedes essence. In other words, there is no essential meaning. There is no purpose. You're born into this world and what you do with your life, what you make of your life, is up to you. Now, does that sound like it might be responsible for a lot of the perspectives in our world today as people believe a lie that somehow freedom is going to be found in self-expression or that there's no such thing as gender or that there are no essential purposes for male and female I mean we could go on and on and on and see that what we have in our world today in this clash of worldviews is essentially a, a clash over creation so here we are in the first five words of Genesis 1 1 and we see something critical The doctrine of God the Father, our creator, offers us a hope and a vision of life that the world cannot offer. It's just not equipped to do it. We find ourselves in a world that is not here by accident, but by design. This world was designed by a personal God as an environment for his children to know and to glorify him. So let's continue to look at the text and how God the Father is glorified in nature. We're going to have to move a little more quickly through the six days of creation. If we look through the rest of Genesis 1, we see that God is exposing to us his attributes as God the Father. There's something fascinating about these days of creation. If I was to design a chart and have uh, three rows and two columns and we put day one, 
2, and 3 in this first column, and we put days three, uh, 4, 5, and 6, we'll see something. There's a pattern in this. On days 1, 2, and 3, God is establishing different environments. And in days 4, 5, and 6, God is filling those environments. So in, on day 1, verses 3 through 5, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. So we have light and we have darkness. Uh, if you go to day 4, in verse 14... We see God's created the light in the darkness, made that distinction. Look at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. That's day four. So day one, God creates the environment. Day four, he fills it with the stars and the moon and the sun. We could go to day two, verse six. And we see God separate the waters above from the waters below, God creates an atmosphere. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. So God makes the sea and God makes the sky. Now look at day five, verse 20. God said, let the waters swim with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. Again, we see God forms, God fills. In verse, uh, in day three, go back to verse nine. We see God separate the seas and the dry land and create vegetation. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. So day three, God forms an environment, the dry land, and he equips it with food, uh, plants, and seed-bearing trees. And then flip to verse, uh, to day six, we see God fills this environment he's created, this dry land, with creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, Creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kind. So we see this pattern of, of forming on day one uh, a world and filling it on day four and forming in day two uh, and then filling it in day uh, five and forming a world in day three and filling it on day six, played again and again. But all of this is meant to point us to the attributes of God. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Paul, in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of of the world. So here we see God in these six days of creation revealing his attributes to us, his attributes of greatness, God's eternality, God's independence from his creation, all the omnis, you know, omni, omniscience and omnipotence and om, omnipresence, all these things are clearly re- revealed. Also God's attributes of goodness, his knowledge, his wisdom, his creativity, his beauty. So we see the first We see first that God the Father designs an environment. When we speak of God the Father glorified in his work of creation, the first thing that we see, part one, is that he's designed this environment. He's designed an environment for his children. 
This universe was created to be a place where he would reveal himself to us. He would dwell with us. He would allow us to know him, to glorify him. The natural world is not an incidental afterthought to the spiritual realm. It's not just a place to be escaped for heaven. It's the meeting place of God and humanity. It will be redeemed again. It's a revelation of the Father for his sons and his daughters. And that leads us to our second aspect of the glory of God in his work of creation. Part two, the Father is glorified in his creation of humanity. Creatures that by their nature and by their actions are meant to magnify him. By their nature and their actions are meant to magnify him. So let's look at a few things. We're still on day six. The nature of humanity. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Everyone say, in our image. In our image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This wonderful world that he's made, this wonderful home he's made, he now gives to them and tells them, now you fill it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with every seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. So we see God set up this, this amazing world and, and, and set up these different environments and then he fills each of these environments and then it's as if God brings Adam and Eve and he says to them, I, I did all this so that you could live here, so that you could dwell here, so that we could meet here in this place. So something in the very nature of humanity glorifies God, we see in this text. God is glorified by making humanity in his image. In other words, God made human beings to be an expression of his own life, to be a reflection of them. Let me give you three simple words to help you understand what we mean when we talk about God being, um, humanity being made in the image of God. First, three R's. So I'm, I love to do alliteration because I'm a preacher. That's what we do, right? Reason, relationship, and rule. Reason, relationship, and rule. I think those three words help encompass and describe what we mean when we talk about humans being made in the image of God. We have reason. So we have an ability to think. God made us rational creatures. Unlike any other creature, we can apprehend ideas. We can think of abstractions. I never have asked my dog, as much as I love her, what is two plus two? I think no animal alive today could grasp the necessity of the law of non-contradiction. But humans can. And in fact, we do it whether we really understand or realize we're doing these things or not. God calls Adam, we see, to name the creatures, name the animals. People, unlike any animal in the world, are able to think God's thoughts after him. We were made for a relationship. We can all have relationships downwards in the order of creation, right? Right? Uh, again, I love my dog Lucy. Usually when I come home, she's one of the first 
wants to greet me when I get in the door. She runs up and she comes up to me. And we certainly have a relationship. But humans, unlike any other uh, creature in creation, can relate one with the other and together with God. Look at God. This God who himself is a God of relationship. Just before he makes humanity, who is it that makes man? He says, let, does he say, let me make man in our, my image? What does he say? Look at the text. He says, let us, let us make man. So the irreducibly relational God makes creatures who are relational. Rule. Humans, unlike any other creature, are able to express the authority of God, and we see that perhaps most clearly in God's charge to humanity to go forth to have dominion over this world. We're called to express the authority of God in this world. In the, in the Roman Empire, as, as the Caesars went out from Rome and into the ancient world, and they conquered, and they went further and further afield, we find these archaeological ruins. Sometimes they built these great arches, and on these great arches, they would have displayed some of their great victories, or they'd have statues erected in their honors, or great plinths that would rise up. And there were monuments made uh, all the way around the Mediterranean basin, even over into Great Britain. And, and you ask the question, why would they make these monuments? Well, because as the empire grew and as it went further and further afield, those emperors wanted everybody to understand something. There's a king who sits on the throne in Rome. And God, in the way his people live in this world, wants to proclaim a message to all of creation. There is a king who sits on the throne of heaven. And so we, God's people, are made in his image and given authority to exercise so that we might point to our higher authority. And so we pray prayers like, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are the ambassadors of that kingdom. We can do this because of our nature, because we've been made in the image of God. God gives us this authority so we can, in a finite way, do what he has done with all creation. We can exercise authority in a sphere of influence, and in some ways, call a world into being. God is glorified in, his, in the nature of the creatures he makes, the nature of humanity. He's glorified in his creation of covenant, his covenant with humanity. Consider this, just for a moment. The God of incomprehensible power and knowledge and being handcrafted Adam and Eve. He gave them a home. He spoke with them. Just, just think about that. The Westminster reminds us the distance between God and his creation is so great that although reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator, they nonetheless could never realize any blessedness or reward from him without his willingly condescending to them. And so it pleased God to provide for them by means of covenants. And so we read in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall die. Here we see God the Father entering into a covenantal relationship with Adam. He sets the terms of the covenant by giving Adam the dignity, the opportunity to exercise the dignity of obedience. The invitation to a relationship of obedience is an invitation to a relationship 
of trust, which is an essential manifestation of love. God granted Adam his word so that he would be able to live in the world that God had given him. He did not leave him like an orphan, but gave him guidance for a life of flourishing in the environment he had created him for him. And God gives Adam a blessing, the blessing of living and dwelling within the garden, but note that it's a conditional blessing. It's a covenant that demands Adam work in obedience to the will of God. It's conditional. If you, if you live this way, you can dwell and enjoy this world I've made for you. If you disobey, you will die. God the Father is glorified in the nature of the creatures he's made. He's glorified in the covenant that he makes with them. God is glorified by revealing himself to creatures that are able to respond in obedience to him. He condescends and makes covenant, revealing the stunning love and grace of a father. Finally, as we consider how he's glorified in his creation of human beings, we need to explore what it means that he instituted this marriage relationship. So look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So we, we see this, this rational and ruling aspects of being made, the nature of humanity and the naming of the creatures and the relational coming in in this search for a helper for Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. In creating man and woman, and bringing them together, God in many ways created an analog of himself, something that is like him, yet not him. We can see it in so many different ways in the one flesh union that Adam celebrates and that that Moses um, memorializes at the end of that text. We see a a principle of complementarity in this relationship between the man and And the woman, two things that are alike and yet not the same. And it's their very difference that allows them to fit together. Uh, They'd both been formed by God's hand. They were both creatures. They were both humans. And yet there's this same but difference uh, for them. And you can probably guess that Adam uh, picked up on that right away when he saw Eve, right? I mean, uh, they they weren't clothed. and, And immediately he says, okay, there's differences between the two of us. And yet we are the same. In the same way that maybe there's, a, a, there's, there's, there's pedals on a bicycle. And, and, and if they were both the same, if they were both uh, oriented in the same way, if both were at the bottom at the same time and both at the top at the same time, how many of you know you would, your bike wouldn't go very far? It's that very difference and sameness that allows the bike to move forward. There's distinct difference, and yet they're able to become one flesh 
In, in many ways, we see a small earthly analog to the great three-in-one, the Trinity. We see Adam called to lead. He's given the commands of God, and he communicates those commands to Eve. He's called to name the animals, and he himself gives name to Eve. There's a sense of Adam's call to headship in this relationship in the very text itself. This, this complementarity, and yet there's a mutuality of calling in the care for the garden. We see a principle of multiplication. God wants Adam and Eve to fill this world he's made. He wants them to be fruitful and to multiply and to give out life. I think about this. I thought about it when I had my own children, of of that, that amazing thing when you have children, if you've had children, if you've had that blessing, you enter this amazing river of life. <laughs> Very literally, biologically, this river of life that stretches all the way back to Adam and Eve. An earthly, creaturely, finite analog of God's eternal life, which has stretched from forever to forever. When we have children, if we're allowed that privilege in some small way, we're able to say, let there be life. We're given an opportunity to create a world, an environment for those children to come to know us as father or as mother. This marriage relationship, custom designed by God the Father, was not only intended to be a source of fulfillment for the man and the woman, it was meant to be one of the primary lenses through which they would come to understand God himself. So, in creation, we see God the Father do what every earthly father should want to do, provide a safe home for his children so they can dwell together and know and love each other so that they can know him. The story of creation is an incredible condescension. God chooses to bend low. The limitless mind and being of an infinite and eternal person ever existing in a relationship of never-ending perfect unity with Father, Son, and Spirit, determines to create length, and width, and height, and depth, and cells, and supernova, and dust motes, and mollusks, and mountains, and all these things. He makes all these things in one amazing act of communication. And revelation. Why? For the sake of communion. And that is an even greater act of condescension. Rather than spinning the universe like a top for a time and then tossing it aside, he determines to give himself in relationship to tiny things of flesh and blood. And more than that, to let those creatures reflect himself. This thing of creation... It's the greatest act of condescension imaginable. Well, almost. God had a greater act of humility up his sleeve, and you're going to have to stick around for the rest of the day to hear about that. But for now, I'm finished to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that um, our hearts and minds would be captured by the picture of you, the great God, the God who is infinite, willingly creating constraint and willingly creating creatures and communicating with them and inviting them into your very life. Lord, like a father, 
uh, bending down and picking up a child. Or a father allowing his son or daughter to work beside him at the workbench. Lord, you, you are a good father who made a wonderful world and invite us to live within it. We thank you for the story of creation and what it reveals to us about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.